Hey friends, welcome to the Rhythms for Life podcast. I'm Rebecca Lyons. And I'm Gabe Lyons. And we are trying to continue having a substantive conversation about rhythms, about why they're so important in our life. And I'm excited about today where this is going to go because it's getting into the neuroscience side of this conversation, which is important when we're getting into how brain chemistry works, how we've been wired, how we've been designed. And that's one of the things that people are taking advantage of on your website at RebeccaLyons.com. And that's the quiz to better understand what rhythms are they naturally more in tune with that are coming to their life in an easier way. Right. I've been hearing from people what their healthiest rhythms are. Some are surprised by it. Some are like, nope, that feels spot on. And when you know what that is and you can then take that information and go, okay, so if my strongest rhythm is connect, then that means I should probably work a little bit on rest and restore and even create. And so what are the ways to do that? So as you take the quiz, you get an auto reply on how you can just go through this PDF download on taking inventory of your life that comes when you pre-order the book. So that's been fun to just see people really take that to heart and reflect on the ways they want to grow those other rhythms. Yeah, it only takes five minutes, about 40 questions. You can breeze through it, but it's going to give you just some clarity as we keep having these conversations and invite guests on to know who do you need to listen to the most. And today the conversation's critical because what Kurt Thompson does, who Rebecca interviews in this podcast, he speaks to not only the formation of our brains and how the chemistry works, but he also talks about how God's designed our minds to process information, to understand relationship, to know how to actually have this hope and fulfillment that we're all pursuing. He's written a couple of books, one called The Anatomy of the Soul. Back in 2010, his most recent book, The Soul of Shame, gets into our feelings, how we're processing emotion. But Rebecca, when you sat down with him, I mean, I know you came away from that conversation just... Blown away. Yeah. Completely. Partly because he just reminds all of us that God established the world and created life in rhythm. And so it starts literally in creation that everything that God ordered for us operates in rhythm. And when we get outside of that boundary, chaos ensues. And when we live in chaos, that's when everything starts to fall apart. And let's talk about the chaos. I mean, you and I recently watched this documentary. It's an HBO documentary called One Nation Under Stress. And it's dealing with how stress is kind of the epidemic of our time. Yes. And how 4% of the world's population is in America, but we're consuming 85% of antidepressants, opioids, the type of drugs that are are literally kind of making us numb out, turning us into people who don't have as much empathy. We don't know where to go with our stress. And that's what this whole conversation is about. And part of what I was so impacted by in that documentary is that we're actually lowering the lifespan in our generation of of people and it's most affected in ages 35 to 55 it's there's this demographic of people that don't know what to do with their stress and so there's this lifespan that's lowering because of deaths that are happening too soon and they're calling it and i mean get this this was kind of shocking when you first hear it but they're calling it deaths of despair yeah deaths of despair and despair is what happens when you no longer are finding union in your mind, like reality is no longer lining up with how you feel. It's not making sense. You start right. to despair. And the top three things that that are causing these early deaths are suicide, accidental poisoning, which is essentially overdose, opioid overdose, drug overdose, 
and liver disease, which mostly comes from alcoholism. And right. so we're seeing in this middle-aged group, it's mostly whites who live outside of large urban population. That's the group where they're seeing this happen most significantly. And those who are ahead of the curve are going, this is an epidemic most people don't understand unless you've lost a family member to it, but it's urgent and we right. have to take steps to try to solve this stress crisis. And that's exactly, Rebecca, what you were led to write this book about and some of what you've been walking through. And that's why I hope this conversation just continues to give hope to people that there is a way forward. Right. Despair is when you believe that things will never actually change. You kind of give way to something. And then when you don't have hope for a future that looks different, the only other option is to numb out because the pain is just too great. And Kurt really gets into this in this conversation. He kind of called me out a couple times and he's like, when are the moments where you start to just feel that spiral begin even before despair hits, but maybe it's a chronic overwhelm. Like I described to him in our conversation of like, I can have such feelings of overwhelmed and don't know how to get out of that. And so he meets us there in that place and has just great counsel for it. Yeah, and as you're listening to this, I think there's a moment towards the end, you're gonna wanna just have quiet space because he not only helps you get educated on it, but helps us all practice what it might look like to try to live into one of these rhythms that gets us back in touch with who we are. Kurt, I am so excited to have you here. This has been a long time coming. Mm. Mm. (laughs) Gabe has sung your praises for forever. And Mm. then I finally got to hear you earlier this year Mm -hmm. and meet you in the flesh. Mm. And now we are sitting across from the table and able to have this conversation. And I would love for you to just kick off what you see, even the the idea of rhythms looking Mm -hmm. like from Scripture, from nature. Yeah. Well, first of all, Rebecca, it's really, I'm, I'm just delighted to be here and I'm really just tickled to be part of this. I'm uh, so grateful to be um, having this conversation and and glad that your listeners are having the opportunity to not just hear me, but hear others uh, that you're drawing into this conversation. So mm-hmm. thank you for thank doing you. all this work. When I think of rhythm, I am struck by the rhythm with which we read that God actually is functionally creating things. We read day one, day two, day three, day four. I don't, and I don't think you know, the writer of Genesis is a brilliant writer and they show, they don't tell, they invite the reader into the very rhythm that they're reading about. Mm-hmm. And so you read not just that certain things happen on each day in a rhythmic fashion, but you read the very things that are happening on each day are rhythmically in relationship with each other. So it's night and day, it's water above, water below, sea and land, animals above, animals in the ground, all the all these kinds of things that are taking place. And if you think cosmologically, if you think about how the world, how the universe operates, it operates in this huge rhythm, right? The earth goes around the sun once a year. For instance, the earth spins on its axis once a day. We have seasons that come rhythmically. We have tides that come in and out. We have then waves that hit the beach in this rhythmic motion. And then you get to human beings and we have pulmonary function. We have breathing. We have a heart rate that is functioning rhythmically. We Mm -hmm. walk with a certain rhythm. There is rhythm in everything that is about the entire created order. Wow. And so it would make sense to me then that 
this rhythm that is literally built into us, not just in our bodies, but as our bodies are in connection with the rest of created universe, that it would be, it, it would make sense that we would then also be created to live rhythmically with intention. And we would say this begins for the fetus slash newborn with sure. the beginning of labor. There's a push out and then it relaxes in the push out and then it relaxes and eventually it gets pushed out into the world. And that baby will then have the rhythm of sleep and wake, sleep, wake, sleep, wake. And then with what we like to talk about as the attachment process begins to emerge, eventually this newborn and then infant and toddler begins this rhythmic movement away from mom yeah. and then back mm. and then away from mom and then back. Yeah. And eventually he gets in his car and drives away and he goes off to college. I see A little longer, this, a little right? further. Exactly. Each time, don't remind me. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yes. And so yes. we have, we have all these rhythms that are built in just even biologically mm -hmm. and in our attachment process. Mm -hmm. And we would say that also extends into our communities. So when we talk about spiritual disciplines, for example, and spiritual practices, we think about the significance of, for instance, solitude. Sure. We don't, we, we, we get to practice isolation here. We're really good at practicing isolation, which is not good for us. Right. We don't have a lot of practice with solitude, this sense right. that I am going to, with intention, separate myself from the cacophony of everything that's taking place in my head and around me to create space for me and God to be mm -hmm. in this space. But mm -hmm. we never talk about solitude without talking about its rhythmic return to community. Yes. And so these two things are then going to be in rhythm with each other right? in the same way that our pulmonary function and our heart function right. and the seasons are working right. for the purpose of creating within us the space and energy to create as we yes. were made to create. Yes, so good. I think about Jesus when he invites us to come into his rest. It changed the way I thought of rest, like mm -hmm. that it requires pursuit. Mm -hmm. And there's, mm -hmm. it's not, it's not a veggie now. It's not an escape. It's mm -hmm. actually a very intentional pursuit mm -hmm. to him, mm -hmm. to go to him, come into my rest, take my yoke upon you and learn of me mm -hmm. and you will find rest for your soul. All of a sudden it was like, oh wow, this is an invitation into intimacy and communion. Mm -hmm. And so now it's funny that you say solitude and isolation are not the same thing. I don't think so many people think about it like that, but it's absolutely true because in the solitude, you are not alone. He is Emmanuel with you, and there's a, almost a sweeter communion because there's no distraction robbing the noise and the intimacy of that. But talk to the person who is in a logic loop, probably because it is a safety net. It's a, it's a defense, maybe from other seasons in their life where they didn't have control. They had to really fight for it, and this became the way to kind of separate the emotion from the logic. Mm -hmm. Talk to that person because I— I'm not that person. I can kind of be in the emotion loop. And sometimes I need to kind of land where those emotions need to go. But what is that integration of both? And how do you walk in a healthy way of holding those two things in tension? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And it's tricky because when I see patients, uh, patients, as, as, as we say, human beings make change only and not before they've suffered enough. Mm -hmm. And in AA, we would say, you know, you're ready to get sober and be in recovery when you've hit rock bottom. It's a similar kind of 
idea. But uh, if I live most of my life out of my logical cognitive self, if I'm having trouble with my marriage or if I'm depressed or if I'm anxious and I'm now sitting in Kurt's office, interestingly enough, uh, that doesn't mean that I'm automatically going to be interested in changing the way I am now going to acquire information from you, Dr. Thompson, about how my life should be better. I'm just going to keep doing what I've always been doing, just trying to incorporate new information that you're about to give me. And that's not very useful. And so one of the things that we really do have to do is invite people to begin to pay attention to their embodied experience in ways that they simply never have. Mm -hmm. But I will say to people, the first thing that I want you to do before you do anything else, when you, when you wake up in the morning, before you do anything else, I want you to go outside and I want you to walk to where you can find a tree. And I want you to look at the tree. I want you to put your hand on the tree. I want you to notice what you feel. Hmm. And I want you to do it for at least 30 seconds. And I said, like, I realize, like, if, you see, if, if you're seen doing this in your neighborhood, it looks a little strange. So <laughs> go when it's dark. But the point being, we give people physical exercises that they literally can use to turn on parts of their right hemisphere that they heretofore have not. But there are other, even, even more conventional ways to do this. I, I like, we give people, I give people particular pieces of music. And I say, I want you to go home, take this piece with you. I want you to listen to this. And I want you to start to pay attention to, if you sense anything, right? We, the brain senses, images, feels, thinks, and behaves. Those five things it does. Mm. And it's a nice shortcut way of kind of like we sift be, we sift our mind. I want you to pay attention to what you sense. I tell like I want you to read the Gospel of John and I want you to Out loud? Yeah, read the Gospel of John. I want you to read it out loud. Yes. And I and and I want you to describe what you see at the wedding at Cana. I want you to tell me what you smell. I want you to tell me like what you hear. I want you to tell me what Jesus looks like. I want you to tell me what his mother sounds like when she says, do what he tells you. Wow. I want you to start not to analyze these stories as a theologian or from a distance. I want you to be in the story. Yeah, so and you're so, activating all of the senses. Right, and, it's, and, and the hard part is, of course, is that if I lived in a world in which I've never done this, None of this makes any sense. And when I'll say, look, this is how the brain works. The first you sense, and then you make sense of what you sense. Wow. And this is what's happening all the time. The brain works bottom to top and right to left. And now I'm, I'm like, I'm going to make sense of what I sense. So if you're not sensing something, it's not because your brain's not doing that. It's because you're not paying attention to what your brain is doing. It's like having a radar ship out in the ocean monitoring all the other ships that are on the ocean. We just don't have anybody on board. It's not that it's not working. We just don't have anybody reading the data. It takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of practice. We say like, okay, one millimeter per month wow. is how long it takes for a neuron to grow, which means- But that's growth in it, one it, month. It is growth. And the more we are willing to practice, 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 practice- Back to the rhythms. Mentioned rhythms, perseverance, mm -hmm. we become what we pay attention to. Wow. What do you say to the person who is lost in depression, lost in a loop of fear of anxiety, chronic, debilitating panic or OCD or whatever the thing is that's crippling them because there's an emotional reaction that they can't quite land? What are some of the practices? Yeah. Uh, there's nothing really that is what we would call pure emotion mm. that we uh, consciously sense. 
there is what we call primary emotion, which is typically what we um, measure using instrumentation, right? You use EEG monitors and so forth and so on. And these would be things that tell us that long before you or I perceive that we feel angry or sad or disappointed or whatever these words are that we're using to describe these states, there are parts of our brain in the brainstem, limbic circuitry, and lower that are not circuits that are connected to our capacity to consciously sense things. So if someone were to um, walk in the room in such a way that would frighten you, that wouldn't take very long for it to register with you that you're frightened. But in brain time, long before you became aware that you're frightened, there would be things in your brain, there would be cir there's circuitry in your brain that is mobilizing your body long before, long, we're talking milli to nanoseconds. Sure. Long before you are consciously aware that you're afraid or that you're ashamed. It's getting it ready. Right, it it's is. It's almost it, like it, the it, pathway right. it's like, begun. It's like uh, you're at the Boston Marathon, you and, uh, you know, 50,000 runners, and it, it, but you're at the back of the pack, and so it takes you 30 minutes to get to the starting line before sure. you can start. So we're getting, you're ready, the gun goes off, and you're going to get ready to get to the starting line. The point being that this is what we call primary emotion, and the body is constantly in the business of primary. Like, there's never a time that we are not regulating our affect in some way, shape, or form. But by the time it starts to register with us that I'm afraid, or when we're just having a memory of something, and as I go back and remember that, I think like, oh, that's really, I love that memory of that meal that we had. Or, ooh, gosh, I had that conversation with Gabe that really didn't go well. Mm -hmm. He wasn't behaving well. Right? So, <laughs> so uh, we, we have these. And, and the thing is, is that by the time we uh, even start to be aware that there is this thing that I feel, that feeling is accompanied now by imagery. And it's accompanied by, by, by a storyline that I'm contributing to this. And this begins in brain time almost immediately. And so in the course of three seconds... I have a feeling that is being shaped by the story that I'm telling that is constantly looping back and shaping the way that that feeling goes. And so we start to recognize that feelings are never apart from the stories that we're telling, that we are telling all the time. Wow. And those stories are shaped by what we do with our bodies. And so for someone who is, as you're describing, overwhelmed by feelings, we are not going to change that by giving them just something to think about. I'm going to say something like, we're first going to understand what you are feeling by identifying where you sense it. Sure. We're going to take it out of the realm of, oh, I feel sad. Because when you say, I feel sad, I don't really know what you mean. Right. But if you say, I feel sadness in the center of my solar plexus, and I say, I want you to take your left hand and I want you to put it over the center of your solar plexus. And I now just want you to take three or four slow, deep breaths. That's all I want you to do. And then I invite you to pay attention to what do you now sense that's any different. And it is striking how people will become aware that something has shifted because one of the things that they've done is that they've simply turned their awareness to their body. They're now not disappointed or angry or sad they are attuned to what their body is sensing. Their body doesn't know that they feel sad. Their body just has this tightness in the center of their solar plexus. I, over the course of my lifetime, have kind of told the story that that's what this is, and it means these particular things, and it's associated with when my dad or my mom or my spouse or my dad do these certain things. 
I would like to invite you to take it out of that category mm -hmm. and just simply pay attention to what we can observe. Yeah. The minute that we do that, we give ourselves agency to begin to transform all that. Okay, so practically, I'm in a season where I feel overwhelmed mm -hmm. a lot. Mm. We brought home a five-year-old girl from China. Indeed you did. And we have teens. Uh. And so I find mm. myself on this narrative of like, I'm overwhelmed. Yep. But the problem with saying that is it just floats. Yep. And then it falls in all categories like laundry and cooking and chronic stacks and lists and bills and piles and somehow a work that somehow has been shoved to the side, you know what I mean? And I wonder how many listeners feel that, this idea of I'm just overwhelmed. Right. And I tried to give language to it to Gabe <laughs> recently, mm. who is in very illogical. Um, he's like, well, well, then we just got to have systems. We got to have programs. We got we just got to get help. We got to get, right. da, da, da. And, and so it is practical in his mind. And I'm like, I hope that works. I hope that helps this feeling of overwhelmed. Right. But sometimes if the emotion comes, it feels bigger than just like, let's have a tighter ship and a system on how we solve this. Right. And so what you're saying is let's isolate maybe that overwhelmed thing into more of like a physical. Right. I mean, if Gabe were here, I would say, so here are some, here are some things that you might want to try, right? So mm -hmm. um, we, we like to say that uh, uh, because the right brain senses and then the left brain makes sense of what the right brain senses, we, are, we always go back to um, the phrase from many, many years ago. Uh, it would be many years ago for some of your listeners, not for me. Uh, just say no to drugs, right? We, if you are aware that mm -hmm. that was a thing that happened back in the 80s. Yeah, and, I do. I remember. You know? And uh, as we like to say, you know, the problem with that phrase is that the part of the brain that really enjoys the drugs has got nothing to do with the part of the brain that hears the words, just say no to drugs. And so it can't really speak to the problem. Like, right. just so like, it doesn't, like saying no, does it, it, it doesn't make any sense to it. And in the same way, when we say, I feel overwhelmed because I've felt overwhelmed, like I get what you kind of mean, but like, we use that word even though the word itself doesn't really mean anything. Right. <laughs> so I would want to say to you, wait a minute. Tell me more about what you sense, what you image, what you feel, what you think, mm. and what you do. Let's start with your body. Like where do you, like whatever it is that you're using the word overwhelmed, I get sure. that. Mm -hmm. Tell me where that is. And if you say it's in my face or it's in my hands or it's... Uh, and I'm going to say, I want you to take 30 seconds and I want you to breathe slowly four mm -hmm. times. Mm -hmm. I want you to take four times just to breathe slowly. And I say, I'm not asking you to focus on your breathing. I'm just asking you to breathe four Good. times. And one Good. of the first things that happens is, you know, the pulmonary function is interesting is in that it is the one involuntary function of the human experience over which we also have voluntary control indefinitely. Mm. right? You don't mm. have voluntary control indefinitely over your eye blink rate or over your cardiac rate. You can indirectly shape that, but you can't do that forever. But your pulmonary rhythm is something that you don't have to pay attention to. It'll take care of itself on its own. But if you want to regulate it, you can do that. Wow. And so when we give people that job, it indirectly shapes everything else. It relaxes your musculoskeletal system, it slows the process whereby which your mind is racing all over the place because I'm doing some work at simply focusing my attention on a simple, repeatable, 
physical activity. And the next thing that I'm going to say is like, well, what do you notice about the nature of what you're imaging? I'm going to, I'm going to, we're going to like uncouple this, right? We're going to, we're going to take the word overwhelmed sure. and we're going to uncouple the different things that are happening from it. Well, tell me what you image. Well, I image and what you'll notice is like I, my image is jumping from this to this to this to this to this. Sure. So the image is very much back to the place of when that feeling surfaces. Exactly. And then we do the same thing with what you image, with what you feel, what you think, and then what your body is doing. And, yeah. and we would say, okay. And that's when it gets dangerous, right? Because when I think I see myself in that way and then I think you might as well just quit everything that you're doing because you clearly can't do the simple basic things without being overwhelmed. Right. So it just like spirals into this incapacity cycle. Right. In the book that I wrote on shame, we talk an awful lot about how one of the things that happens to us uh, neurobiologically, and, and, and I would say that like, so for instance, shame is an active ingredient when we feel overwhelmed because there's the sense in which I'm not enough, I can't be enough, I won't ever be enough. Yeah. I'm going to end up living in a box under a bridge, right? It's, that's right. where it's all going to be. Like, right. I'll be forgotten. Again, back to your spiritual practices. Mm-hmm. For people who make, let's say, a regular practice of meditating, doing a silent prayer meditation for 10 minutes a day, you do that for six weeks, it'll change your life. Because one of the things that we see, like, you don't, you, you want to practice these kinds of spiritual practice, we, you want to strike while they aren't as cold, mm. right? I want to be practicing these things such that in that moment when I'm standing before the laundry mm-hmm. and I am ready to jump out of my skin, mm-hmm. um, I know that I have been in the spiritual gymnasium practicing the rhythms that you're describing because those rhythms are being practiced for this moment. moment. These rhythms are not being practiced for some big moment on some big stage when you're going to keep the world from going nuclear. (laughs) No, we keep the world from going nuclear because of what we do when we stand before the laundry. For someone who hasn't done a meditative listening prayer or something like, could you just describe that? Well, the first thing I would do is, uh, you know, uh, the, the contemplative prayer tradition that has been alive and well for Christians since the beginning of the church is something that we haven't had a lot of practice or training or teaching about. And that's to our own demise. Like it would be great if we had that. And so uh, there's a lot of great literature out there that I would recommend to your readers. Um, One of the books that we use frequently is a a very small book called Into the Silent Land by Martin Laird. And we we recommend it to all of our patients. We practice it in our practice. I'll link that in the notes. And an example of what he asks us to do, it's, it's very simple and excruciatingly difficult to begin, but it's not difficult because it's complicated. It's difficult because we are primed for distraction now, right? Sure. With our phones, like we are practicing becoming distracted. It's not It's not an accident. We, we become distracted on purpose multiple times a day. And so we do have to practice allowing ourselves to be in places where we have to do the rigorous, hard, not complicated, hard work of simply closing your eyes in a relaxed posture, seated comfortably. And as Laird points out, I'm just going to simply begin to breathe. And Laird would recommend that we choose a prayer word. Sure. For some, it's Lord Jesus, have mercy. I realize that's not a word, but you know, a small phrase. Mm-hmm. And of course, we who are such wordy people 
and who want results and who <laughs> want to be productive. We're like, what the heck is this? I'm just repeating, or is this not some Eastern thing? That's like, no, uh, you know, our Orthodox, our Eastern Orthodox friends have been doing this mm-hmm. formatively, deeply as followers of Jesus since the beginning of the church. And what this does is that it allows me to practice strengthening two things, strengthening my muscle of, my mental muscle of restraint. So good. In order then to draw our attention to where we want it to be. My problem with my distraction is not just that I can't focus my attention. It is I first cannot restrain myself. I don't, I am not willing to do that. Mm. I'm not willing to restrain myself in lots of different places, lots of different ways. This is an activity where you can begin. I, I tell patients, look, I want you to try this for 60 seconds. I want you to try breathing, prayer word, in and out, Lord Jesus, have mercy. And you're going to breathe. We have an exercise called a six breath per minute exercise. It's mm-hmm. another simple thing that they can do. So we attach these two things. The normal human adult respiratory rate at rest is about 12 to 15 breaths per minute. If you're going to breathe Cutting six that. times a minute, you have to breathe deeply and continually such that you have an inhale over five seconds and an exhale over five seconds. So helpful. And it takes a lot of work to learn how to do this because we just don't have any practice at it. But what that means, it's six continual cycles then over 60 seconds, which is about half of what we usually do. But the thing that you're doing that is key is that like I tell people, like you can't watch a video while you're doing this. You can't- um, Send a tweet. (laughs) No, you can't do that. Because the minute I start paying attention to something else, my brain will automatically drop back into its regular rhythm of about 12 to 15 breaths per minute. What you're doing by breathing only six times a minute is you are asking your attentional mechanism in the front right part of your frontal cortex of your brain to do the work of staying with your breath in this rhythm. Using the prayer word helps us focus our attention on this. And what happens with this? Well, the first thing that happens is that you recognize that everything about your body becomes more relaxed. Not asleep, because you're you're very much more attuned, because you're having you are attuned, you're awake, you're alert, you're attuned. You're not sleepy, but you are relaxed. And the body and the mind are so much more able to be linked together when they are not in a fight or flight situation, which wow. is what I am when I'm standing over the laundry and feeling overwhelmed. Exactly. It's my brainstem being in charge of this. It's running the narrative that says, like, I'm going to end up in a box under, under the, bridge. the bridge. So if I'm practicing this for 60 seconds, I get the experience of having my body be attuned and relaxed while I'm still alert. The wow. second thing that happens is I am having the experience of learning what it means to be distracted because... People who've been doing this for years will tell you, oh, I don't just like listen, pay attention to my breath for like 60 minutes. No, what I do is find that I'm just much more aware of how frequently it is that I'm like leaving, paying attention to my breath. I become much more able to recognize that I've been distracted and bring my attention back to where I am. It's so good. If I'm bringing my attention back to where I am and the muscle just continues to grow, It means I become that much more sensitized anytime during my day. Mm. When I am now distracted, when I am anxious, because I start to feel the difference, the delta between what life is like for me when I've spent five, 10, 15 minutes in a posture of meditation Mm -hmm. and the rest of my life. We can then incorporate this. Yeah, we can incorporate this into the activities of the rest of our life. And we find that the more we are practicing this, we like to say we become what we pay attention to. 
If I'm attuned to states of mind that are at peace, it means this is what I remember. And the more that that's what I remember, that also becomes that which I anticipate my future to be. What I pay attention to, I remember, and what I remember becomes my anticipated future. And if that's what I'm actually doing, it means even as I anticipate doing the laundry, I'm gonna to start to see that doing the laundry is gonna be an opportunity for me to drop for 10, 30 seconds into simply just doing meditation. Wow. It turns everything on its head wow. such that it is now not a stress-inducing thing. Right. It becomes the opportunity for me to know that I'm going to be at peace, wow. walking in the land of the living before the face of God. Wow, thank you. I'm going to re-listen to this a hundred times, <laughs> and I am so encouraged by it because it's allowing me to have language, to have action, to have intention on how to navigate that. So I hope for you listeners that hear this, please feel free to re-listen as you need. Maybe every time you throw a load in the, in the laundry or start a new meal or start the washing of dishes, uh, caring for loved ones, because this is the fullness, uh, I believe, of this holistic integration of inviting God into every moment. So thank you, Kurt. This is a gift and a treasure mm -hmm. and a blessing for you to be with us. Uh, you're most thank welcome. You it's been so a pleasure. Much. You bet. I don't know about you, but I was blown away by just the moments he spent at the end walking us through what a centering prayer would look like, how we could actually be armored with ideas and understanding of how to slow down our breathing, how to invite Jesus right into that place of being overwhelmed, to be our peace, to be our comfort, to be our strength so that we can tackle the things. When he said, if you put this in practice for six weeks, it'll change your life. I hope that that's what you guys are going to find in the days and the weeks to come. And that particular practice you write about in Rhythms of Renewal in the Rest Rhythm. And Centered Prayer, I know for you, has just been so helpful, so grounding. And so it was just really great to hear him lead us all through how to do that. Now, Kurt mentioned the word solar plexus. I just want to take a second, because if you're like me, you'd never heard that word before. But essentially, here's what a solar plexus is. I'm reading this from the definition. It plays a large role in keeping our organs functioning smoothly and preparing the body to respond to stress by making changes in our metabolism. Okay, so that's solar plexus. I also want to encourage you to go to RebeccaLyons.com. That's where you can take the free quiz. You can assess which of these rhythms is coming most naturally for you and how can you start working on the other three. And we give you a free take an inventory of your life guide that's going to help walk you through that. But finally, I'm really encouraged about a partnership that Rebecca and I have been working on, and we're excited to announce it today, and that is with our friends at Our Tribe. So as you're seeking practical ways to sustain your emotional, spiritual, and relational health, they have an app that will match you confidentially and securely with a certified coach who fits your core rhythm and can help you experience the transformation you desire. I'm excited about this because a podcast does one thing. It can stimulate your thinking, but what we're excited about is if you need to go deeper, they're going to give a free session to you. So all you need to do to get started and get that free session is text RFL2019 to the number 555-888. So again, just text the letters RFL with the number 2019 to 555-888, and that will start a process where you can actually get a free session 
with a certified coach. Well, until we're together next time, let's keep taking agency in our own lives. Let's work to live on rhythm. Let's take that time this week to just have some centered prayer, to rest, to settle into who we've been designed to be, and then let's live from that place, the abundant life. Special thanks to Ryan O'Neill with Sleeping at Last for providing the music for season one.